This morning we're continuing to study through uh, the book of Philippians, and we're partway through chapter 2. If you want to open your Bibles, or pull out the Bible in front of you in the pew. Philippians chapter 2. And we're thinking about what it means to be a community that rejoices. What does it look like when a community is characterized by its joy? It's hard, I think, to speak at a purely theoretical level about joy. Joy is one of those words that we all kind of know what it means, but it's hard to give a a precise definition to. We know that joy is, is something like happiness, but not exactly the same. It's something like contentment and gratitude, but different. Joy seems to be this, this deeper thing about who we are. Right? Something that is enduring even under very difficult and challenging circumstances. And so while it's hard to, to speak theoretically about joy, I think often we know joy when we see it. We know joy when we are brought into it and experiencing it firsthand. I've mentioned on a few occasions that uh, Katie and I have some really good friends who live in Hong Kong. And for several years, they have lived and worked and been a part of a community there uh, whose, whose mission is to distribute or redistribute all kinds of different aid to uh, parts of the developing world. They, they, they distribute millions of dollars of, of aid every year. And they work in refugee camps They work in really politically volatile countries. They work in some of the largest slums in in the major cities of Asia and Africa. And as you might imagine, to be part of that work, to be committed to that work day in and day out, year after year, can require a great deal of stamina. They are really on the, the front lines and in the trenches of poverty firsthand. But in visiting our friends there on a few different occasions, one of the the most pervasive sort of senses you get when you're around this community, what keeps them going, what's the engine that drives them to do their work, is this constant commitment to joyful celebration within that community. This is a, a picture of their campus there in Hong Kong. They all live together in an old military barracks that the, the government of Hong Kong uh, sort of temporarily deeded over to them. And they live in these apartments. They have warehouses there where they, they collect and redistribute aid. And as people living in an intentional community, many of the, the meals they eat, they share together. But they don't eat in just any old cafeteria Uh, When they have lunch or dinner together each evening, they dine together in Narnia. You can see it printed there on the sign. And I'm not joking. To get into the the dining hall, you have to go through this huge wardrobe that they've built. uh, That's the main entrance to the the, the dining facility. They also, uh, as a community, regularly meet uh, for worship and to celebrate and and to notice and to give testimony to what God's doing among them. And one of the spaces they've reserved for that is called Rivendell. 
And it's this old concrete building that they've reshaped and, and refurnished and painted to look like uh, the elven uh, homeland in Lord of the Rings. And so you've got Narnia, you've got Rivendell. The guy, one of the guys that helps lead the community, walks around with an Indiana Jones hat on most of the time. It's just this kind of crazy place in, in the outskirts of Hong Kong. But these friends of ours, they take the practice of joy seriously. It's built into the way they live their lives. And in a city like Hong Kong, if you've ever been there, you'll know it's one of the wealthiest places in the world. It's, it's a city where luxury goods and multi-million dollar apartments and status symbols are everything, right? Everybody's flashing these things around. And our friends who live in this place, they don't, they don't really have any of that. They're not part of that scene in Hong Kong. But they are a community that the whole city desires to be a part of. Their campus constantly is hosting school groups uh, to visit and be part of their work. They frequently have CEOs of Fortune 500 companies staying with them for, for weekend experiences. They bring churches on their campus to partner in their projects. And people come, and, and they don't just come once, they come back again and again. Because when they're part of that community, they, they sense there, there's something there, something they are hungry for. You can't escape the sense that these people know something about joy. And it, it's a joy that, that transcends the hard realities that, that they're faced with and that they're always entering into as part of their work. But it's a joy that is truly deep and good. And so my question for us this morning as we move to our passage in Philippians 2 is how well do we, how well do you and I know joy as part of this community? How might we celebrate with consistency as a part of who we are? How can we celebrate what God is doing among us? And are we committed to the practice of joy, the joy of God's goodness with one another? So if you'll turn to Philippians chapter 2, we'll pick up in verse 14 today. Let me pray for us as we open God's word. Jesus, we thank you that you are our king, and in your kingdom and in your reign and rule, we can rejoice and sing and be glad. Lord, even in, in very trying circumstances, that joy persists. Pray that as we look into your word through Paul to the Philippians, Lord, may the words of my mouth as I teach, may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing. May they bring you joy today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week we began the first part of chapter 2 where Paul laid before us this beautiful hymn, this song of Jesus, the Christ, the King, the Lord, and said, let, let you in your relationships have the same mind that was in Jesus. And today, as we pick up verse 14 and following, we see what that, that looks like in practice. What does Christ-mindedness look like in a community? Verse 14. So then do everything without grumbling or arguing 
so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky, as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul continues to explore what it is to have the mind of Christ, what it means to to work out the salvation of Jesus in community and in the church. He writes to his friends here in Philippi. And remember that the backdrop to this letter is that both Paul and the community in Philippi are going through some pretty stressful times. Things are difficult in their communities. And precisely because they've made a choice to follow Jesus. Right? Rome, uh, Paul is in Rome. He's imprisoned. He's awaiting trial for his uh, proclamation of the gospel, for starting all these churches uh, and starting a movement within the Roman Empire. We don't know exactly what's happening in Philippi, but in several places in this letter, Paul speaks about their suffering, about, about the tensions that exist There's something happening, probably from their fellow citizens, where where they're beginning to feel things closing in around them. Paul says that when we strike upon hard times, when, when life in our communities becomes especially stressful and difficult, we have a choice about what kind of community we become in those times. There's two distinct options he lays out here in the first several verses. And the first option available to us is to go the way of the grumblers. And we already talked about this in the children's message. And Paul cautions us against this particular pathway in verse 14. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. But in choosing this word grumbling, it's it's a Greek word here, but it would appear in several key places in the Septuagint, the the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Almost certainly that word grumbling has an association in Paul's mind and with just about anyone reading or hearing this passage. And it's connected back to the stories of the book of, of Exodus and Numbers. right? Where God has just worked his mighty salvation... He's rescued his people from the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. He's delivered them. He's brought them out into the desert. He's going before them in a pillar of cloud and fire. Only to discover that this community of God's people become experts at complaining. They're they're grumbling their way through their salvation. In In the heat of the high desert, they're thirsty they're hungry. They have this, this whole list of expectations that God is not meeting for them. And they begin to grumble against God, against Moses, 
against each other. All right? Somehow becoming the people of God isn't what they thought it was going to be. Right? They're frustrated, and so they're taking it out, taking out their frustration through complaining, attacking someone. To be honest, grumbling is something I'm pretty good at. I'm guessing probably all of us are pretty good at. The kids were pretty good at it this morning. Some days being a husband or a father or a pastor or part of a church community isn't what we thought it was going to be. Right? It doesn't measure up to the, the hopes or expectations I had in mind for that experience. And the one thing we can always count on to make us feel better in the moment, but that never actually makes anything better, is this practice of grumbling. Right? We, we find ourselves, you know you're grumbling when you use sentences like, this is the way it should be. Right? Should be this way, but it isn't. And so I'm just going to stick my heels in and be upset and complain. And disappointed. And if you've ever hung out with a grumbler, if you've been that person, you know it's a life-sucking experience. Right? Grumbling kills communities. We might initially want to be with someone who's grumbling if we want to add our own disapproval or, or axe to grind. But pretty soon, any kind of sizable community that's that's doing a fair bit of complaining, you know, we don't want to be part of. We, we stay away from. I can be pretty good at grumbling within the little micro-community of our family. And there are times when, for the sake of everyone else in the house, I need to remove myself. I need to get out of that community. I need to take an adult timeout. Right? Sent to my room and hit reset. Right? And, and try to recover somehow the mind, the mindset, the Christ-mindedness that we read about in verses 6 to 11 last week. Grumbling, Paul says, is one option that's available to us in community among the, the saved and, and rescued and redeemed people of God. It's just not a very good one. It doesn't end, it doesn't take us where we want to go. But like those grumpy Israelites Paul also has an association or an allusion to another community, another time in God's, the history of God's people, when they were under very stressful and difficult circumstances. A time when Daniel and his friends were taken in exile to Babylon. And they had lions and fiery furnaces to navigate. But instead of grumbling and complaining, you see a really different portrait of of what that community of friends does under persecution in the book of Daniel. Daniel and his friends do not complain. They don't turn inward and begin to tear each other apart. Instead, they, they fast. They pray. They commit themselves to the worship of the true God. And they cling to, to the hope they have in him. Right? They, they routinely talk about their God who is able, their God who is mighty in strength and, and will deliver them. 
and is worthy of their worship. And it enables them to persist in some very difficult years in Babylon. But at the end of the book of Daniel, there there are a series of chapters that are like a vision or a dream that's given to Daniel about a time that is to come. And and at the, the the last few verses of the book, the angel tells Daniel this. He says, Those who are wise in this time will shine like the brightness of the heavens. And those who lead many to righteousness will be like the stars forever and ever. These are nearly the same words Paul uses at the end of verse 15 here in Philippians. And Paul seems to be kind of laying out this choice, laying out these two options for the community of his friends in Philippi. About how they live out, how they work out their salvation, how they begin to to respond to the saving power of God at work in their community. Option one, right? God saves us, but then we spend our lives grumbling our way through the desert, right? Complaining, wishing God did this instead of this, right? Wishing God's will was my will. Or option two, we can be like Daniel, in the community in Babylon, who live under the power of, of resistance, stress, and persecution, but who keep returning to the peculiar hope they have in God, in his strength, in his promise, in his coming kingdom. And as they do so, the scriptures say they became luminescent, right? They became like stars shining in the sky. They were a witness to the community in which God was working his salvation out. In verse 17 here in this passage, Paul makes clear the option he recommends. He says, even if my life is being poured out, right? Even if if my work and my association with the gospel costs me my very life, I have nothing to complain about. In fact, at the end of verse 17, he says, Instead, I am glad and rejoice with all of you in this outpouring. And then in verse 18, So be glad and rejoice with me. That's an imperative. Paul's saying, do this. Choose this with me. Yes, I understand you have a million reasons to complain and to turn against each other and to be discontent, but choose joy with me as your apostle. But as most of us know, having someone tell us to to cheer up, to be joyful, only does so much. It only goes so far, right? What's better than those words is, is seeing joy up close and personal. What's better than words is being pulled into the presence of joy itself. And so Paul knows what they need are messengers of that joy that will embody it. And that's sort of where the attention of this letter goes from here to the end of chapter 2. Paul sends to them a messenger of joy. Read with me from 19 
all the way to the end of the chapter. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself. Because as a son with his father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. Verse 25, but I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I am all the more eager to send him, so that you may see him again, and you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. The second half of chapter 2 here, in some ways, feels kind of like a, a status update, right? In some ways, we might read through this section and feel like it's, it's devoid of, of the rich, kind of dense theological content that, that we know Paul for. But I think when you read through these verses and use your imagination a little, imagine what's going on here. You see that that these are more than just mere travel plans. The last part of of chapter 2 tells us about this exchange that's taking place. And And it's an exchange that's been ongoing. It's an exchange in joy. Between Paul and his community in Rome and the church and the community there in Philippi. They are routinely sending joy back and forth to one another. Partly through the writing of letters, like the one we're we're reading. But better than, than the letters themselves is the encouragement that comes with the person carrying the letter. Right? There are these messengers of joy That are being dispatched. Timothy and Epaphroditus in this passage are are these messengers, and they are, as Paul describes them, shining examples of what that Christ mindedness looks like in a human being. These are are people who are living out the gospel, not just in word, but, but in deed, in action, in practice. And so the first messenger Paul speaks about is Timothy in verses 19 through 24. And Paul tells them that he hopes to send Timothy to them as soon as possible. Because Timothy was there with Paul when when the church began in Philippi. Timothy has a history with these people. 
in Philippi. And probably short of sending himself, Timothy is the next best thing. Paul says here in the passage that he knows Timothy will put their needs ahead of his own. He knows that he will be a source of encouragement to them. But Paul also says that he wants to ensure that when Timothy comes, he can bring a full report of what's happened with Paul's trial. He's still waiting for that outcome. The decision of Paul's fate hasn't been made yet. And so he holds Timothy back. He says, I'm not sending him yet. Once we know what happens, I will dispatch him to you. But because Timothy can't travel at this moment, in verse 25, Paul explains why he's sending a different messenger of joy. It's actually the messenger that the Philippians sent to Paul in the first place. And as you put the the story together through, through the book of Philippians, we understand that some months before, I don't, you know, maybe even a year, we don't know how long prior to this, but the Philippians became aware of Paul's imprisonment. They heard he was in Rome and they were concerned for him. And so one of the members of the church community there, a man named Epaphroditus, volunteered, right, to risk his own neck and make the several hundred mile journey to Rome to be with Paul, probably to bring a sizable financial gift to support Paul in his imprisonment, and also just to stay there and to care for his needs. But somewhere along the way, somewhere in in that journey, Epaphroditus became gravely ill, and Paul says he almost died. To travel any distance, there were no hospitals, there were no antibiotics. If you got sick, you you could very well, uh, that could be the end of you. But rather than turn back, Epaphroditus continued his journey, and he made his way to Rome. So you can imagine what that kind of sacrifice meant to Paul. Right? The the gesture, the commitment, the endurance of Epaphroditus was a source of deep joy in Paul's apostleship. He could feel the affection of that community for him, and it, it bolstered his spirits. But now Epaphroditus is on the mend, he's getting better, and Paul has made the decision to send him back to Philippi. Partly, he says, to relieve the anxiety of of his friends and family who are worried about him. But Paul also goes on to say that he's sending him back so that the community in Philippi, who's going through a hard stretch, they're discouraged, they're, they're facing these external pressures, Paul wants to give them something to celebrate together. He wants the same joy that he experienced from Epaphroditus to be theirs now. And so in verse 29, he says this. So then, welcome Epaphroditus in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him. Throw him a party, set out a feast, gather the community in worship, whatever it requires of you, but make sure you celebrate this occasion. Because this brother of yours almost died, almost gave his life away for the work of Christ. Uh, I love the little details that this reveals about the, the heart and the mind and the mindset of Paul. And the way he thinks and feels about community. Again, usually we think of, 
of Paul as this, this guy with an incredible intellect. He's a brilliant theologian. Or maybe we think of Paul as this person with unbelievable perseverance and endurance. And all those things are true. But how often do we allow ourselves to appreciate Paul as the apostle of joy? I mean, this is a, this is a person who knows joy in a profound and deep way. He's someone who celebrates with his friends. He rejoices in them. He notices what God is doing, and he says so. I think it's cool to think about, it's not just Epaphroditus and Timothy. The New Testament church is this network of all these different communities and all these different emissaries and messengers of joy circulating, not just letters with each other, but but their lives. Right? Paul has raised up this network of people like Timothy and Epaphroditus, but also Silas and Barnabas and Chloe and dozens more, right? bringing joy to one another, encouraging one another in difficult times, right? gathering this collection from the churches to take back to the church in Jerusalem to feed them in difficult times. Paul is this, this nexus of joy. Wouldn't it be incredible to to experience and to know and to be part of of joy in that same way, in the way that our community operates here at Jericho? And so I wanted to finish this morning by giving you a brief assignment, an invitation. And you probably already know where I'm going because I I gave them to the kids. But everybody should have been given one of these cards on the way in this morning. If you don't, in just a second, I'll ask you to put your hand up and we'll make sure you get one. But this is just a very simple postcard. The words, with great joy on the front, are from uh, that passage about Epaphroditus in this chapter. And I'm going to give you about three minutes. We'll put some music on here in a second. And I want you to think of one person that you want to notice, you want to celebrate, you want to, to honor or spark joy in. Because you've, you've seen God doing something through them. And you want to name that. Right? We need to celebrate these things. We need to encourage one another in this way. So as you're, as you're listening to the music, again, you'll have two or three minutes. If you just get a name, if that's all the further you get, great. But write the name in on the address. If you begin to have a sense of what you'd like to say to them, again, it only needs to be a postcard length. So you've only got you know, five, six sentences max, maybe. But encourage them, and you may even be able to just drop it in the postal box before you leave. Right? There's one by the country store today. Put it in the mail. The, the, the stickers are a postcard stamps, so postage is already covered. And if you happen to need addresses of anybody in this church community, I left some of the directories at the back newcomer's table. On your way out, you can find the address you need. So take a few minutes. We'll play the music. If you need a pen or you need a card, just pop your hand up and either the ushers or I'll walk by and get you. So if you need anything, just pop your hand up and we'll be around. To him who is able to keep you from falling, to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To him who able to keep you from falling to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to him who is able to keep you from falling to present you before his glorious presence without fault 
finish between now and uh, before you leave today. If you want, you can put your name on the the top or the bottom, or you can make it anonymous and drop it in the mail um, this week. Let me um, pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you uh, that in you we can stand fast. We have uh, the hope of an eternal kingdom that you are working and building and bringing uh, through, through the reign and rule of Jesus, the good news of his gospel. And Lord, would that give us the freedom to live with joy and to speak that joy into the lives of, of our brothers and sisters and also those um, outside our church community. May you make us agents and emissaries of joy. In Jesus' name, amen.